Hi, welcome to Authentich, a podcast about English language teaching. We're your hosts. This is Felipe Lopes coming to you from Bahia. My name is Gustavo Froes, speaking with you from Rio de Janeiro. And it's Kelly Pennington over here in Sao Paulo. Thank you for joining us. So, hello everybody, welcome to one more episode of Authentich Podcast. I'm Gustavo speaking, and here with me I have Kelly. Hey! And Felipe. Hi! And today we're going to talk about some very interesting things, but I have to start saying that right before recording this, I was having the most wonderful breakfast with my wife. We are, we are in a hotel at the moment, and we have that beautiful continental breakfast, and I was just there with her, and I was sitting on the table. Oh, I and was... What, Kelly? Sorry, I got interrupted. I what? was sitting? Sitting? I was sitting. Oh, sorry. I was sitting at the table. Thank you very much, Kelly. And I was sitting at the table with my wonderful wife. <laughs> well. <laughs> and there it is, people. Error correction. How did you feel about being corrected right in the middle of your sentence, Gustavo? Jesus, I felt terrible, especially because I'm recording. <laughs> but... <laughs> But I can say that most definitely I will not make that mistake again. Hmm. Interesting yeah. because <laughs> interesting because I had a student this week who told me that he had a shoulder problem. Uh, he had injured it recently over the weekend um, and he still wasn't feeling good and that he was drinking drugs this in the morning to feel better. And I didn't say anything until I, I let him finish his story. And then I explained to him why drinking drugs might not be the best choice of words to describe taking his medicine. And this is something that uh, happens to us all the time. Not the drinking drugs, of course. But... <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> well, actually, well, maybe not drinking drugs, but yeah. And every day, every week, we have to go about correcting these uh, mistakes, wrong words and wrong grammar and everything. And Flippy, do you have any story for us? Well, actually, I have a similar story. Uh, it happened uh, this week. My, my student literally asked me if it was possible to uh, go to the pharmacy and buy drugs. So I was, uh, no, please don't do it. Uh, well, I basically contrasted it, contrasted the meaning of what you said to the meaning of what you wanted it to say. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, it happens. And it happens and we have to be quick on our feet because we cannot embarrass the students. We cannot show that they make a serious mistake, such as like drinking drugs in the morning. And I've had more than once teaching do and make and my students say, oh, because I did many friends this weekend. That also would and... be an exciting weekend combined <laughs> with drinking drugs, you know? <laughs> And, and how do you correct something like this? You cannot embarrass the person, but it's something you must address. And there are some techniques that are more appropriate or less appropriate, depending on the mistake and depending on the moment that mistake is made. And I believe, Kelly, you saw something about it on The Last yeah. Breast Teasel. Yeah, so if anybody attended The Last Breast Teasel, it was online. There was a wonderful presentation by Jamie Cara Jr. And he was talking about the different types of feedback that we need to be giving to our students. 
Um, one of the things that I found most interesting was he differentiated between um, declarative memory and an explicit learning system, which is what we use in a very simplistic terms is what we use uh, learning new words and a non-declarative memory and an implicit learning system is what we use to learn things like grammar or building habits. And so he said that an explicit learning system allows people to learn via explicit reasoning. So this is allows you to learn like dates and facts and concepts. And in language learning, it kind of translates into Lexus, right? And so we rely on some of the outer cortex structures of the brain to process this. And it, this is what allows people to tell a personal story or to narrate in chronological order. And what he said was interesting to me was that there's it's possible to have learning in one single event. So one single event might be enough for learning to, to take place with this system. Whereas con if you contrast that, the implicit learning system or the non-declarative memory, we use this to learn skills. For example, writing a bike, identifying wines, because it's something that we do repetitively. And it's something that we can relate to learning grammatical structures because we, you know, say these over and over and over again. This is actually processed somewhere completely different. It relies on like inner cortex structures. So this system is more of like a, a reward system. So your performance can be indefinitely improved with practice. So when you say something and you receive positive feedback, the synapses are like, oh, let's strengthen this connection and let's repeat this, um, let's repeat this action that I did. And this requires several events for learning to take place. So if we look at it from like kind of that scientific perspective, perspective, if we're learning vocabulary, it could be as simple as just explaining it super quickly in a delayed feedback session, you know, vocabulary like, oh, you said drinking drugs, it's actually taking medicine. And that could be the end of it. Um, but if they're making habitual problems or habitual errors, mistakes, then we might need to correct them in a different way because they're actually using a different system to process and produce that language. So he said that when you're dealing with errors in grammar, because it's kind of this thing that we're, we're doing repetitively, that you should be doing the feedback feedback, the corrective feedback in two, within two seconds and using um, a prompting type of modeling. So not giving them the correction and just stating the first two or three words and having the student repair that by themselves. So they have to reflect on what was wrong and then make the, the correction. I thought it was interesting, but I'm not sure that everybody does this and takes this into practice or it's appropriate for every situation. What do you guys think? Uh, I, I think it might be appropriate to most situations, but maybe not appropriate to most students. Some people really do feel bothered uh, when they are interrupted and they lose their train of thoughts. And, and I don't know, older people, I work with senior students, so they do not like me interrupted at all. So I have to do the delayed uh, feedback, but they actually do not remember what they said because they are seniors. So most of the times they just forget what we were talking about mid-class. I think it's extremely interesting to bring this neuroscience into error correction, English language teaching, because you have a lot to learn from this, some these prompts or quick uh, help. When we talk about uh, pronunciation in our next episode, there is something very interesting that I've read somewhere and that I've seen people do, that is have a chart of, for example, the different sounds of TH pronunciation. And when the student makes a mistake, you just point 
to the correct sound and it will create something within their heads and within their minds and they will instantly associate visually maybe that when they say the it's not the as we have in Brazil they will start connecting I don't know if it actually works but that's a discussion for the next episode Felipe what do you do in your classroom is it similar to Gustavo do you take into consideration the student and how the the context in which they're learning well definitely yeah but not only do I do I take into account uh, my students profile but also the type of lesson that I'm teaching so if I'm teaching a lesson or a stage of a lesson where um, my focus is accuracy all right I will correct it on the spot but if the focus is fluency well I will let them talk and after they finish I, I will do this uh, delayed uh, correction on top of that I'd say that when we think about uh, correction on the spot it's all about the way we correct because if our students are talking they make a mistake and then you Fulano, you just made a mistake like this no definitely uh, it will uh, put our students in a uncomfortable uh, situation and it depend depending on the students it might not be uh, that good but if you simply say you know in a very discreet way in a simple way oh i i did friends i made friends simple like that um well they might they might um help them more than you know something that puts them on the spot wonderful what you said i would address this i think this is interesting depending on how you deliver the, the correction mm -hmm. it's super important because there's there's a difference between direct and direct correction obviously like if it's a direct correction you're giving them exactly what they need and indirect is like there's something wrong here so mm -hmm. it, then it goes into the whole idea is this you know are they attempting to use new language is this something that they're unfamiliar with or is this something that it's expected that they know like is this truly an error this is truly a, you know something that they're getting wrong it depends on the level of the student it depends on the type of activity that you're doing for example if I have a student that says um, I eat pizza this weekend if it's an A1 student they're attempting because maybe they haven't seen the past yet so it would probably be better to do like a direct correction with them and say like oh you ate but if that's like a, a B2 student then you would probably want to use more like a indirect be like you what just because then they're gonna have to go back and think about it right and how do you feel about uh gestures in class because when my students they do something like i eat pizza this week i just take my thumb and i point my thumb uh backwards and i say hmm and they oh and they started associating this as oh this is a sentence that should be in the past and i do not interrupt them but they they see that I'm showing physically something to them and they start auto-correcting after some time. In my experience, people respond better to that because I've tried to do the like the reformulation and I have had some students work successfully with it and some students not, where I'll reformulate what they say wrong and they're just like, uh-huh, and they keep going, but they don't say it correctly. Does that happen to you too, Felipe? Or no? Yeah, no, <laughs> no. definitely. <laughs> Definitely. Where you say it, they're like, yeah, huh? Yep. <laughs> like, no, 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 but say it right. 
<laughs> this week I had something similar happening to me. I'm preparing my student for taking the IELTS this month. And she made, it was a more advanced mistake, but she made this kind of mistake. And then I did not want to interrupt her, but I didn't want to do uh, the feedback at the end of the lesson. So I just rephrased what she said with the appropriate tense. It was something that should be in the past perfect. And she just continued the conversation and she didn't realize what was happening. Like, And I replied to her and she, yes, and she continued the conversation saying it wrongly. And I repeated two or more times in the correct tense until I had to actually stop and say, oh, Luana, you made this now. You have made three mistakes on the same topic. Uh, we should address it. And I think it works for some and it doesn't for others as everything in life. But how many attempts on this uh, giving the correct prompt or the correct construction, how many attempts should we go for before we actually interrupt the students? That's a good question. That's tough. Yeah. I think it might, it might uh, vary from person to person, uh, from student to student. Something, well, something <laughs> that I learned to take advantage from, especially during the pandemics, was recording my students uh, throughout their uh, our lesson. Uh, well, Zoom Love has got this. this. Yeah, Zoom has yes, got this, this nice feature. I recall them. Um, I just get what they said, and then we listen together. And after it, I start, you know, asking questions to to have them think over what they said. Because as you said, sometimes when we correct, well, they may even recognize their mistake, but they they can't recognize that they made that mistake. And by showing this, boom. It's another way of, I think it's a really good correction tool. I had a student this just this week. Anyways, he has to give presentations for work and I recorded him uh, without him knowing, but then obviously I'm not releasing it anywhere. But, and then I showed it to him afterwards. He goes, I didn't know you were recording teacher. I was like, surprise. Okay, so let's look at this and see how it went for you. And I thought it was a really good activity for him. He goes, I did, oh, this is wrong. This is wrong, but I know how to say this right. And I think it was good for him to to be reflective of that and then also for me to see what is like interlanguage what is a slip what is a mistake because things that he was identifying I was like oh okay good so then he knows that this is wrong and he now he he has raised awareness of this but if I didn't do that type of activity that you know that feedback type of activity I wouldn't know I would just assume that maybe he was just making a bunch of errors and he didn't know these things but he did there was many things that he was able to self-correct on in a delayed format. So it also gives us a lot of feedback in, into like, how do we proceed with these students? What do we need to address? And what's actually something that, you know, they're, they're still trying to use it appropriately and correctly in their, in their production. Yes, I think that's wonderful. I have never recorded my students uh, with them being unaware of it. I think it's a good <laughs> practice, maybe, depending on the student. I mean, you just but... can't release it, obviously, Gustav. Like, no, of course. I mean, no, yes. It's for learning purposes only. <laughs> but yesterday I did something similar to this, but I, I'm big on auto-correction. So I asked my students to record something, a reply to a long turn from IELTS. And that was the, the first thing. I said, oh, right now I'm going to give you like five minutes, uh, record something and send me through WhatsApp. And then she sent me. And then we had a whole lesson on how to speak better. Yes, how to speak a little bit more appropriately in terms of conjunct and everything for the grade that she wants in her 
your IELTS. And then at the end of the lesson, I said, so this is what you have to do. Listen to your own recording from the beginning of the class and record a better one on the same topic using what we saw in class. And I still haven't got the second one, but I am I'm really hopeful that it will actually work. It's the first time I'm trying something like this, but I think it creates a sense of independence. You know, uh, I gave everything and now she has to produce it back to me. So how much is she actually learning? How much is she actually understanding from our lessons? How much can she actually apply to her, to her practice, to her speaking and everything? I'll not say actually again, okay? It was three times in a row. I feel bothered by that. But you know, it's everything that she will develop this self awareness of her own speaking and i think if it works i'll be very proud of this do you guys ever just as a question do you guys ever give restrictions on what exactly you want students to focus on when they're doing things like that like listening to recordings or self-correcting like restrict down to topics like I, i just want you to focus on vocabulary and pronunciation or i want you to focus on grammatical structures do you ever kind of give them reduced topics to to focus their their awareness on to things i think it depends a lot on the again on the student's profile and the lesson the lesson goal so the, i mean it's it's at least from my perspective it's cognitively too demanding if you simply deliver a, a, the production and okay listen to it and improve it in a way or exactly. whatever mm-hmm. i mean what would i focus on but but yeah sometimes i like to 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 give them this this kind of challenge you know but i usually prefer to break it down into topics and you know have them concentrating in one aspect per time yes uh, i agree i do as philippe does Uh, but I think it's interesting uh, to work with something like this. I have topic lessons. So the past two weeks with some of my students, I've been teaching how to use the strong adjectives instead of using whatever with very. So I'm, I've been focusing on adjectives. So I expect them to use that into their recordings that they are sending me. But it's not something I, I call their attention to that. And they actually do it. I think after after some time or if you pace your lesson, if, if you have some fluidity in your lesson, the student will uh, understand what you want him or her to say in the recording. I, I believe that it's all part of a whole. So I've never asked to f- oh, focus on the use of this and this, but the topics are, are something that they are able to connect to that. But I always do ask for two audios. If it's a prep course, as I'm doing, I'm doing the IELTS now, I ask them, oh, give me a long turn for that. But if you feel like speaking for five minutes on the topic, send me a second recording, and then they feel more free. They feel freer to speak. They feel less pressure on, on their speaking. And it even comes better than the long turn because they feel no pressure at all. They are just talking and they say, okay, I'm feel like I'm talking to you, Gustavo. I said, yes, that's the idea. So they need to understand their pace. They need to understand how they work. And no matter how many uh, topics, themes, whatever you are talking to them, no matter how much 
you you give them how much input you give them it's their decision to use it or not it's not mine well that's how i i go about it that's my point of view but people it, disagree yeah no i agree and disagree with you because then you give them lots of freedom then but you're prepping for ielts so then how do you address the want of them to discuss things freely with you and have a chat compared to the more formal register of answering ielts questions uh, and that's how i do it and it's been working but it's not uh, the appropriate way to do it people say uh, i really do believe that if my student is speaking better as a whole about anything and anything i mean like give me a pizza recipe or giving me answers to ielts you know uh, they need to know how to handle the language as a whole. Teaching register is just a part of it. You know, teaching register is, is the part of it that you need to know after you are already speaking all the rest. You know, uh, teaching how to answer the IELTS questions, they already read, need to know how to speak and answer about everything that is being asked of them. Uh, it's not the most traditional, conventional way But to we do know it. you're very unconventional, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> But it's been working for the past couple of years, five years maybe, since I started preparing for TOEFL and IELTS and, and TOEIC and things like this. Uh, and the strategy, well, the strategy that works for me, it does not work for Felipe, it does not work for Kelly. It's everyone has its own. Yeah, I like it though. I like the idea of, listen, you need to be able to talk about topics. Like you need to be able to discuss, because you actually never know on those standardized tests what's going to pop up. So you have to be comfortable kind of discussing almost anything. If you're not just comfortable in any type of discussion, and then on top of that, you have the added stress of adding these type of like more formal type of registers and doing the interactions with the uh, with the other test takers and all of that, you know, it, then it causes more anxiety, more stress, and probably result in a lower score. So it's a it's a nice way. It's kind of a more humane way of dealing with it. You know, deal with the topic first, talk about everything, get them comfortable, and then just kind of raise the awareness a little bit. Okay, so but you do have these standards that we're trying to meet, these criteria because of the testing situation. That's it. And and now I'm going to talk about my personal experience. I have recently passed the CPE. Woo! And <laughs> Yay! It took me it took me a little while to say yay because my microphone was <laughs> And so I've recently passed the SP and of course we have the oral interview. We have that interview with the examiners and everything. And it's always in pairs. If you take uh, Cambridge tests, the CAE and the CPE, they are done in pairs. And there is a specific situation in which my pair was using, everybody was super nervous, me included. And he was using all the, the instructions that we receive uh, beforehand, like use at least an inversion per section and use this and use that try to use present perfect and past perfect, the whole shebang that we we're taught. And I was just basically having small talk with the examiners because I was like, oh no, yes, because this and that. And and I remember something that I made them laugh and they cannot laugh. Pay attention. If you're becoming an examiner, you have to keep a straight face all the time. And, and I made them laugh. My application is out. I will laugh at everything. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, and I, uh, one of the questions, and I said, well, it's uh, being a teacher, being an English teacher is not the most successful profession at all, but my family had to understand it, especially because in all the families, there is always the cousin who's a lawyer and the other cousin who's a teacher. And, and they left, you know, and I left, and everybody was comfortable at the moment. My pair was laughing. And why can't we do, why can't we be funny? Why can't we be normal in standardized tests or in any other formal situations? No, I, I think you have to show who you are. Nobody wants mechanic. I mean, a very specific institution of English worldwide wants people to be mechanic, but that's not the ideal. I think you should be yourself. And I passed. I was being a bit like more on the wild side. Uh, Again, Gustavo being unconventional per usual. <laughs> It's not on convention, but you have to go the, the extra mile. You have to risk it a little bit. You have to be yourself. So it's everybody, everything's so boring. If you are, you know, constricted parameters and ah, restricted to, to norms, it's very boring. You have to, you have to be yourself. You know, it's, it's super boring. I agree. I mean, maybe not boring, but yeah. just standardized. I mean, that's the nature <laughs> of standardized testing, right? Like it's stand. There are standards, and there's standards to uphold. And as long as you can reach the standards while integrating your own personality, I think it's great. I would not feel comfortable trying to make the <laughs> the the examiners laugh, but you know, I would be the person with a check, like a mental checklist, using all of the things. I had my checklist, but in my checklist, uh, and I where that in my checklist I had there be yourself and that's it it was there it was on my my study sheet and everything and I was reading just before this recording I was reading a wonderful new article that was released in Cambridge better English section they have free articles for everybody and it's about why should we why should we teach standard English or should we really be teaching standard English because what's the standard what's the standard there really isn't and one anymore i don't think there really isn't and this is a topic for our next podcast yeah yeah and i think that's it for today that's it for me Philippi kelly would you like to add anything else i love you all <laughs> <laughs> I okay. love you all too. Well, we talked about error correction and how we ap approach error correction and how mm -hmm. we can you can take different avenues to correcting people in different situations, right? There's not a correct formula in error correction. That's that's kind of it, you know. There's considerations that we need to take into into place. For example, the context of the student, the context of the the lesson, what your objectives are. In closing, then, uh, well, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. And it's a pleasure to be here speaking to you all that uh, are taking the time, are taking a part of this precious time to be here listening to us. Thank you very much. And these are just our opinions on error correction based on our experience, and of course, we've all had varied experience and deal with error correction in different ways. But we would like to encourage you to look at our show notes because we will be including a bibliography of some resources that we find interesting and helpful if you're interested in looking further into error correction. And then again, these are our suggestions. You have other people that would prefer other books. Yes. And this is what we use in our studies, in our CELTA, our practice, our DELTA our research for the podcast. So thank you for joining us. See you in the next episode. Cheers. Bye. Bye.
Thank you. Bye-bye. Feel free to reach out to us on social media. To learn more about us and this podcast, please visit our Instagram at AuthenTeachPodcasts and drop us a message. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. We hope you tune in to the next episodes. Keep learning. Keep growing. And keep the conversation going. What was that? Okay. Sorry. No, sorry. I don't I didn't know you were looking at me. I'm sorry. So no no problem. <laughs> Keep going. You're doing good. Yeah, well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>